Hi, this is Jose Figueroa with an Approved Workman, where we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to another week of Bible study. I am so glad that you're here as we open up God's word one more time. Our current series is Come, Lord Jesus, a study of the book of Revelation. If you're new to this Bible teaching ministry, here is how you can learn more about our work. First, go to our website, www.anapprovedworkman.org. That's anapprovedworkman.org. On the website, you can learn more about the purpose of this ministry, our approach to Bible study, and also review our statement of faith. You can also listen to previous episodes of the current series on Revelation or any episode from any of the previous series we have done. On the website, you can also subscribe to the podcast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now also on Amazon Music, as well as other podcast directories. You can also connect with me on social media. I'm on Instagram at Workman. On Pinterest, we have a page, pinterest.com slash Workman, And you can also find our Facebook page on Facebook, facebook.com slash Workman. 215. Finally, if you're watching the video version of this lesson, make sure you subscribe to our channels on YouTube and Rumble to ensure you will miss any upcoming episodes. Today, we are in lesson number 40 in the series, Come, Lord Jesus, from the book of Revelation. The lesson is titled, The Return of the King, Part 2. Our focus passage is Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. Please find your way in your Bible to that passage as we get started. In this chapter, John witnesses the wedding of the Lamb and his victory over Antichrist. In our previous episode, we began our study of Revelation 19. This chapter, again, is focused on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. This means... His physical, visible return to this earth to complete the work of restoration. Jesus made a promise to his disciples, and this is the moment in which that promise is fulfilled. From the moment Jesus ascended to heaven from the Mount of Olives, this is the moment that the church, his bride, has been waiting for for over 2,000 years. He's coming back to judge and to rule. Last time, as we look at Revelation 19, we focus on the worship of the king, verses 1 through 6, and then we look at the wedding of the king, verses 7 through 10. As a matter of review, let's go and look at the principles we have learned so far in our study of Revelation 19. When we look at the worship of the king, verses 1 through 6, we learn this principle. The king's people offer their lives as a living act of worship until his return. The king's people offer their lives as a living act of worship until his return. As a way of application, we ask this question. What kind of living sacrifice are you offering to the king? Then, from the worship of the king in verses 1 through 6, we went to the wedding of the king, verses 7 through 10, as we look at the, and we look at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our principle, the king's people make themselves ready for his return. The king's people make themselves ready 
for his return. How are you preparing yourself for the great marriage supper of the Lamb? Before we jump into our lesson today, let's hear uh, what Dr. Heiser has to say about Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. This is from a recent uh, Naked Bible podcast episode on Revelation 19. He says, quote, Is the battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19, 11 to 21 unique in the book of Revelation, or is it alluded to elsewhere? Of what importance is that question to how we read Revelation 16 through 20, chapter 16 through 20. Armageddon, as John tells us, is in the Hebrew tongue, Har-Mageddon, Revelation 16, 16. We learn in part one of Revelation 19 that this term refers not to Megiddo, but to a final apocalyptic conflict for and at Zion, Jerusalem. In this episode, he's referring to his episode of the Naked Bible podcast, he says, we look at how John uses Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog conflict, in particular for his description of this end times battle, for events both prior to and following the second coming of Christ. End quote. Again, that's Dr. Michael Heiser on the Naked Bible Podcast episode 392 on Revelation 19, part 2. Here's our lesson outline and goal for our teaching from Revelation 19. Today we're looking at Lesson 40, The Return of the King, Part 2, from Revelation 19. Last time, as we covered, we look at the worship of the king and the wedding of the king. Today, our focus is on the war of the king, verses 11 through 21. Our lesson goal, our goal for the teaching from Revelation 19 is this, to encourage believers to remember that Jesus Christ King of kings and Lord of lords will return to reunite with his people and to rule the nations. Again, the goal for the lesson today is to encourage believers to remember that Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, will return to reunite with his people and to rule the nations. Let's get started. So we're going to cover our third and final division from Revelation 19, the war of the king. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in mid heaven, Come 
assemble for the great feast of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, and small and great. Verse 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth, and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worship his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Revelation 19, 11 through 21. While this section follows the latest worship concert in heaven and the marriage supper of the Lamb, it is not in chronological order. As we mentioned earlier, this happens in this chapter, Revelation 19, but also happens throughout the book of Revelation. Events are not laid out for us in a nice, tight, chronological order. Again, it's apocalyptic literature. It's a series of visions, not necessarily laid out in a timely fashion. Take, for example, the three sets of seven judgments we have studied, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. Dr. Heiser comments on this attribute characteristic of the book of Revelation, and in specific, the three sets of judgments. He says, quote, These judgments, these three sets of judgments, are recycling each other. They tell the same basic storyline of who the enemy is, the persecution of believers, God pouring out his wrath on the earth generally, and then more particularly on those who take the mark. The reaction from those is anger. We're going to confront Yahweh at Zion. We're going to put an end to this. We are not going to let Yahweh have his way, his plan. We're going to gather together against Zion, against him and Zion, and we're going to stop him. That's what we're going to do. And again, that's Armageddon. End quote. Again, that's Dr. Michael Heiser on his Naked Bible Podcast episode 392 on Revelation 19, part 2. For some reason, John chose to put these verses in this order. Why? Simply put, God's inspiration. At any rate, what do we see next in Scripture? What does John tell us about next? Judgment. It's game over for those who oppose Almighty God. And his Christ, his anointed one, his lamb, his servant, is coming to finish the job of restoring Eden. Evil must be dealt with once and for all. Judgment is going to be carried out. The prophet Isaiah anticipated this return as good news for the people of God. It's the great return of the king for the restoration of Zion. Look at Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 7. How delightful on the mountains are the feet of one who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, Your God reigns. Listen, 
your watchmen raise their voices, they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when the Lord restores Zion. Isaiah 52, verses 7 and 8. The prophet Zechariah also spoke of this day as the return of the king at Jerusalem. Look at Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoils taken from you will be divided among you. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be taken, the houses plundered, the women raped, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be eliminated from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west, forming a very large valley. Half of the mountain will move toward the north, and the other half toward the south. Zechariah 14, 1-4 And John gave us a spoiler for this return at the beginning of Revelation. It's a return that is going to be visible to everybody. Look back at Revelation 1, beginning in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Revelation 1, 7-8. The King is coming back. Let's get to the details of this great return. In verse 11, John saw heaven opened, and he saw a white horse. And on the horse sat the one who is called faithful and true. The first thing to note as we look at this verse is that heaven was open. The doors of heaven were opened. We have seen, quote-unquote, heaven open a few times previously in Revelation. And it's always significant in John's visions for Revelation. The first time heaven was open, John took a trip to stand before the throne of God. Look at Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I look and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and someone was sitting on the throne. Revelation 4, 1 and 2. Then, after the seventh trumpet sounded, heaven was opened to prepare the way for the final judgment. Look at Revelation 11, beginning in verse 18. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bond servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, and sounds and peals of thunder, and an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. Revelation eleven eighteen through 19 And then finally, heaven was opened, 
to show us the seven angels who were going to pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath. Look back at Revelation 15, beginning in verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and their chests wrapped with golden sashes. Revelation 15, 5 and 6. So now heaven is open for a fourth time. And we see this rider on a white horse. Who is this one? Well, of course, the answer is the same one any child in Sunday school could give. The answer is Jesus Christ the Lord. The King is coming. As we go through these verses, we will see many familiar terms referring to Jesus. After all, his return to earth, his second coming, is what the book of Revelation is really all about. And if you have been with us from the beginning uh, in our study of the book of Revelation, this will be a bit of a review to you from our lessons on chapters 1 to 3. If you're new to the study, you can review the lessons on chapter 1, an unexpected reunion and an urgent assignment. Uh, we did two lessons on that chapter. And then you can look at our mini-series on chapters 2 and 3, what we call the Letters to Overcomers, the Letters to the Seven Churches of Asia Minor. So let's get going. By referring to Jesus as faithful and true, John is reminding us of who Jesus is. First, let's look at how Jesus is faithful. In Revelation 1 verse 5, he's called the faithful witness. And in Revelation 3 verse 14, he's called the faithful and true witness. Jesus Christ testified to everything God the Father told him to say. He testified to the world and to his disciples. You can look at John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47, John chapter 8, verses 13 through 18, 17, verses 6 through 8, John 18, 37, and then also 1 Timothy 6, verses 13 and 14. Jesus Christ was faithful to the end in carrying out the Father's will. He testified to the truth. Now, Let's look at how Jesus is true. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, Jesus refers to himself as holy and true. This is yet another declaration of his deity. We know that only God is holy and true, as indicated in Revelation 6, verse 10, and also 2 Kings 19:22, Job, Job 6:10, Psalm 71:22, and Psalm 78, verse 41. Jesus Christ is faithful and true. Jesus Christ is the Holy One of Israel. Jesus Christ is unlike anyone else. He is the Holy One of God. Mark 1 verse 24 and John 6 69. And He is faithful and true. Revelation 3 verse 14 and 19 11. Jesus Christ can be trusted. And this time, he arrives riding on a white horse, what a conquering king will ride. He is not riding a humble donkey, as we saw in Matthew 21, verses 1-5, through 5, when he arrived in Jerusalem during the Passion Week. This time, it's different, because he comes to judge 
and to wage war in righteousness. The divine warrior from Exodus 15, 1 to 3 is coming. So let's take a look at a couple of references at this divine warrior. Let's take a look at this righteous judge. First, listen to Psalm 96, beginning in verse 11. May the heavens be joyful and may the earth rejoice. May the sea roar and all it contains. May the field be jubilant and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. Before the Lord, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Psalm 96 verses 11 through 13. Then we also hear from the prophet Isaiah, beginning in chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make decisions by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with fairness for the humble of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Isaiah 11, 1 through 4. So the king is coming. We have seen that he is faithful and true. We have seen that in righteousness he will judge and also wage war. Moving on to verse 12, we're told that his eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He also has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. So let's look first at his eyes that are like a flame of fire. And again, this will be reviewed for many of you. We're told that these eyes are like a flame of fire. We saw this reference first in Revelation 1 verse 14. We learned that this could represent God's omniscience. He sees everything and his look has a consuming, purifying effect. That's what fire is pictured as in scripture. Consuming, purifying, uh, helping to test, to, to basically... That's what precious metals are taken through the fire to purify them. We saw that reference also to his eyes like a flame of fire in Revelation 2.18 when he was speaking to the churches. These are images of judgment and discipline. Fire, again, consumes things and is also used to refine precious metals. Fire is used to remove impurities. What we see here with the return of the king is that Jesus is coming back to the earth to judge it and to cleanse it, to restore the earth as his sacred space. Now John also tells us that he had many crowns on his head. There are many crowns on the head of the Savior. What can we learn about that? The Greek word used here for crown is the word diadema, which means a crown or a headdress. We have seen that before many times in our study of Revelation. 
This was an ornamental, jeweled, and probably metal headdress signifying sovereignty. And this should take us back to Revelation 12.3, where Satan has seven diadems or crowns on his head. And also to Revelation 13, verses 1 and 2, where the beast, the Antichrist, also had ten diadems on his head. For a time, Satan has dominion over the kingdoms of the world. Then for a time, he will give authority to Antichrist to rule over the world. But guess what? Their time is up. The true king of the world is taking back all of the kingdoms of the world, as we learn in Revelation eleven fifteen. So the king is coming, a king that is faithful and true, a king that in righteousness judges and wages war, a king that has eyes like a flame of fire, and a king with many crowns on his head. We're also told in Revelation 19 that he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. So what about this name written on him that no one knows but himself? It should take you back to Proverbs 34 when the writer of the proverb writes this question. Do you know his name and the name of his son? Interesting verse. In the letter to the church at Pergamum, the overcomers were promised also a new name written on the stone which no one else will know except for the one who received this. Remember, go all the way back to our series Letters to Overcomers, uh, the letter to the church at Pergamum. We did not get a whole lot of information on that name. Here's a quick summary from our study of Revelation uh, 2 and 3. This name, this new name given to the overcomer could be a reflection of their glorified state. You're in heaven, your salvation is fulfilled, you're now glorified, so you have a new name when you get there. But, as we see here, we also learn that it could be a new name for Jesus Christ that no one else knows but himself. And that new name is also placed on the overcomer, the true believer. Uh, again, we get it, a little bit of a clue when we look at chapter 3 of Revelation uh, and we're told in Revelation 3 that Jesus will also write on name, the overcomers will write on the overcomers, his new name. That we see he gets a new name here in Revelation 19.12. Again, Jesus is getting a new name that no one knows about himself. But whatever his new name is, he's going to indicate that we, the church, the believers that belong to him, uh, are to be identified with him. And we're going to get his new name as well. We are the bride of Christ. Remember, remember, we studied the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, the, there is a wedding coming up in the future for the, for the church of Jesus Christ. And typically in many cultures, including our Western culture here in the United States, the bride takes the name of the bridegroom. So there is a lot here happening with this new name. But again, we don't get a whole lot of detail. But it's interesting to speculate and to think about the possibilities. But again... We are identified with Jesus Christ. His new name he's going to give to us as well. We belong to him. And that's the important thing. In his commentary on the book of Revelation, Dr. Chuck Swindoll talks about the possible meaning of this new name for Jesus and our relationship with him. He says, quote, This demonstrates the deep personal 
an inseparable relationship believers enjoy with Christ, a relationship as unbreakable as Christ's relationship with the Father. What Christ is by nature, the unique, eternal, divine Son of God, believers will reflect in a limited way by grace, adopted, finite, glorified children of God. End quote. The King is coming. A King that is faithful and true. A King that judges and wages war in righteousness, a king with eyes as a flame of fire, with many crowns on his head, with a name written on himself which no one knows but him. And in verse 13 we're told that he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. What does that mean? What does that tell us? Well, he's coming to judge and wage war. And in war, there are casualties, and unfortunately, there is blood. This language echoes the prophet Isaiah as he describes the arrival of the divine warrior. Look at Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, the one who speaks in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who threads in the wine press? I have trodden the wine through alone, and from the peoples there was no one with me. I also trod them in my anger and trample them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my clothes. For the day of vengeance was on my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk with my wrath, and I pour out their lifeblood on the earth. Isaiah 63, 1-6 The blood of those who oppose God will be sprinkled on the robe of the one who will carry out God's final judgment. Jesus Christ, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In his book, Escape the Coming Night, Dr. David Jeremiah speaks about what Jesus will do upon his return to earth. He says, quote, When Jesus returns, it will be to execute judgment on those who have rejected him throughout the ages. At his first coming, he was the lamb who came to take away the sins of the world. But at his second coming, he is faithful and true in carrying out every promise he ever made. His blazing eyes will pierce the hearts of those who denied him, and his clothing will be stained with the blood of his enemies. End quote. The king is coming, a king who is faithful and true, a king that in righteousness judges and wages war 
He has eyes like a flame of fire and many crowns on his head. He also has a name written on himself which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe deep in blood from his enemies. And finally, we're also told, his name is called the Word of God. This, of course, is a familiar term, the Greek term logos, that John uses to refer to Jesus. Back to John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle John does not want you to be confused. Jesus is eternal. He is God. In verse 14, we're told that Jesus is not coming alone. John also sees the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, following him. And they were also riding white horses, just like Jesus. Now, this could be a group of holy angels coming with Jesus. The references in the Old Testament to the hosts of heaven usually speak about spiritual beings. However, this group could easily include believers who have gone on to be with the Lord prior to his return. Jude alludes to that, Jude 1.14. A strong support to this second view comes from the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 17 beginning in verse 12. The ten horns which you saw are the ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. That's the Antichrist confederacy in the end times. Verse 13 tells us, These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. Now, they are aligned with the, with the beast, with the Antichrist. They have authority, and they have one purpose. Look at verse 14 of Revelation 17. This will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because, verse continues, He is Lord of Lords, and king of kings, and those who are with him are the call and chosen and faithful. So, in this passage in Revelation 17, God's people, Jesus' people, the ones coming with him, are called the chosen and faithful. They stand with him and are loyal to him. And if you remember Jesus Christ, he is the captain of the armies of the Lord. Look back at Joshua five, thirteen through 15. In verse 15, we're told that from Jesus' mouth came a sharp sword, which he would use to strike the nations. It's an instrument of judgment. We saw this imagery first in Revelation 1, verse 16. That two-edged sword is simply the word of God, as we're told in Revelation 4, 12 and 13. This is what Christ used to deal with the problems at the church of Pergamum, Revelation 2, 12 through 16. The word of God, the sword of the Spirit, as we're told in Ephesians 6, verse 17, is useful for correction and discipline, among other things. This image of the sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus is very powerful. It is the word of God that challenges us and convicts us of sin. It is the word of God that shows us who we really are. In his commentary, Dr. Tony Evans speaks about the power implied in this reference to Jesus as the Word of God. He says, quote, From Genesis to Revelation, Jesus 
is pictured as possessing an authoritative word. John 1, 1 says of Jesus, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. At creation, Jesus spoke the words, Let there be light, Genesis 1, 3, and by his word, light came about. It was by the same authoritative word that Jesus caused the devil to flee in the wilderness. See Matthew 4, 1 through 11. And sent a legion of demons out of a demon-possessed man and into a herd of pigs. Mark 5, 1 through 13. In each of these instances, the way he brought about powerful results was by speaking his word. And so shall it be at the end of time. End quote. We're told that Jesus Christ will rule all the nations with a rod of iron, as promised in Psalms 2, verses 7 through 9, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, Revelation 2, 27. All those promises in the Old and New Testament will be fulfilled. Revelation 12, 5 says that, And she gave birth to a son, a male, who is going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was cut up to God and to his throne. Make no mistake, Jesus Christ is returning again to rule all the nations. No one can stop that. He was born to redeem and to rule. Finally, we're told that this one, riding on the white horse, will also thread the wine press of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. This is a this is the harvest of wrath that we previewed back in Revelation 14. Look at Revelation 14, beginning in verse 18. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city, and blood came out, of, blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia, Revelation 14, 18-20. The Apostle John gives us a very graphic picture of God's harvest of wrath. We are told that the winepress was trampled outside the city, outside Jerusalem, and blood came out of that winepress. The flow of blood was as high as a horse's bridle, and as long as 180 miles or 300 kilometer, that's a figure of 1600 stadia. This is all a picture of a massive bloodbath. Remember, Armageddon, this is not a battle, it's a slaughter. In verse 16, there is one more thing we're told about Jesus Christ in his return to earth. On his robe and on his thigh, this one had a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the one with all authority and he's coming to face and defeat the kings of the earth who have aligned themselves with the Antichrist as we saw in Revelation 17, 12 through 14. He is taking the kingdom back. On his commentary in the book of Revelation, Dr. Swindoll speaks on the significance of this title given to our Lord. He says, quote, 
In the Old Testament, the title King of Kings refers to the supreme earthly king. The title Lord of Lords refers to God himself as the supreme divine Lord. In the New Testament, Paul applies this title to God, the only sovereign, 1 Timothy 6.15, and John applies it to Jesus Christ, Revelation 17.14 and 19.16. The case for the full deity and complete humanity of Christ, with accompanying authority over both heaven and earth, could not be more clear. Jesus Christ is king over all who call themselves king and Lord above all who call themselves Lord. End quote. In verses 17 and 18, we see that John saw an angel standing in the sun, probably in the middle of the sky. This angel cried out with a loud voice, calling out to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, which we have noted before is the center of authority, the center of control. This angel told the birds to, quote, Come and assemble for the great feast of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, and small and great. End quote. The angel is basically spoiling the outcome of the battle. He is calling on the birds to get ready for a great feast because the opponents of the Lord will be defeated. It's a done deal. This language echoes another similar call in the Old Testament in the book of the prophet Ezekiel. In that book, we learn the outcome of the great battle of Gog and Magog in chapters 38 and 39. Let's take a look at Ezekiel 39, beginning in verse 17. Now as for you, son of man, this is what the Lord God says. Say to every kind of bird and to every animal of the field, Assemble and come, gather from every direction to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel. And you will eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of warriors and drink the blood of the leaders of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fattened livestock of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are full and drink blood until you are drunk, from my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. You will eat your fill at my table with horses and charioteers, with warriors and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel 39, 17-20. Many Bible scholars look at the great battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation, and this battle of war, this war of Gog and Magog in the book of Ezekiel as one in the same. And if you look at the language, there are many similarities. So they understand that also the battle that we will see described in Revelation 20, verses 7-10, through 10, it's not a different battle, but a recapitulation of what we see here in Revelation 19. Now, when you think about that term, recapitulation, is basically a repeated cycle of description of the same event with slightly 
different language. So again, like we look at the three sets of seven judgments, it's not three separate sets of seven judgments, but the same one, the same set of judgments described in different fashion. That's what recapitulation is. Let's hear again from Dr. Heiser as he covers this idea in great detail in a recent episode of his Naked Bible podcast. He says, quote, John is recycling this material to describe the climactic conflict and defeat of the beast. And he doesn't just do it in Revelation 20 when he mentions Gog and Magog. He does it in chapter 19. He does it in chapter 18. He does it in chapter 17. So we've seen Revelation 16, 17, uh, 18 are really about the beast. Specifically, Revelation 16 and 19 repeat, repurpose, recapitulate content from Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog event, before we even get to Revelation 20, where Gog and Magog are mentioned by name. End quote. And we will cover this in more detail when we get to our study of Revelation 20. But I wanted you to have that idea in your head as we continue our study of Revelation because there is a lot of uh, discussion on this topic and different views, but this gives you kind of a, a preview of what we're going to talk about when we get to Revelation 20. Moving on to verse 20 of Revelation 19. As we have seen, the outcome of the battle has been decided. It will be over quickly. The next thing we're told is that the beast and his false prophet were seized. They're about to receive their judgment. Antichrist operated under the authority of Satan to oppress believers and deceive the world. It was his false prophet who performed the signs to deceive all of those who received the mark of the beast, leading them to destruction, as we saw in Revelation 13. It was the false prophet who led all of those to worship the image of the beast. So what is the fate for the Antichrist and the false prophet? They were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Eternal judgment is what awaits these two individuals. We see that in Daniel 7 verse 11 and Daniel, 7, Daniel 11 verse 45, the end of the Antichrist, the beast. Unfortunately, all who follow after them, all of them who take the mark of the beast and who worship his image, will suffer the same fate. There will be no rest for the wicked. In his book, Because the Time is Near, Dr. John MacArthur speaks about this location of eternal torment. He says, quote, This is the first mention in scripture of the lake of fire, which is the final hell, the ultimate destination of Satan, his angels, and beyond redeemed. Matthew 25, verse 41. Isaiah described it as a place where their, their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. Isaiah 66, 24. A description echoed by the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 13, 42 and Mark 9, 48. Revelation 14, 11 says of those who suffer there, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. End quote. So we know the fate of the Antichrist 
and his false prophet? What happened to their armies? Verse 21 tells us that they were killed with the sword from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. They are completely destroyed. And as promised, and as in the outcome of the battle of Gog and Magog, the birds were all filled, really gorged with their flesh. They ate too much. There was too much to eat. Look at how the prophet's words are fulfilled. First, take a look at Isaiah in chapter 34. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It drips with fat with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Bosra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Isaiah 34, 6. Again, similar language as to Isaiah 63 as we saw earlier. Then listen to the words of Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 10. For that day belongs to the Lord God of armies, a day of vengeance as to avenge himself on his foes. And the sword will devour and be satisfied and drink its fill of their blood. For there will be a slaughter for the Lord God of armies in the land of the north at the river Euphrates. Jeremiah 46.10 On that day, the Lord's victory will be complete and devastating on his enemies. Judgment will be swift and terrible. Where do you want to be on that day? Well, that is the end of our third division from Revelation 19, the war of the king. What is our principle? When the king returns, his enemies will suffer his full wrath. When the king returns, his enemies will suffer his full wrath. Saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign and the nations were enraged, and your wrath came. And the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bond servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Revelation eleven, seventeen and 18. How certain are you that you will be on the right side on the date of the great final battle of history? Well, that's our lesson for today. How can we apply what we have learned in this chapter? The second coming of Jesus Christ is as certain to occur as his first coming. That is as good as a guarantee as you can get. Make no mistake about it. If you have not received him as your Lord and Savior, you still have time. We are still in the age of grace. His sacrifice on the cross paid the penalty for your sin and my sin too. And that opens the door for you to be with God forever and ever. That's what God wants, by the way. But if you wait too long, only judgment and God's wrath awaits you. That is also true from Scripture. You will join the Antichrist and the beast, the beast from the land, the, sect, the false prophet and Satan in the lake of fire. That's the destiny of all of those who reject God and his Christ. For us believers, as we study this awesome passage of scripture, what are we to do? In the words of Chuck Colson, how now shall we live? I have three reminders for you today. First of all, worship 
him. Worship Christ. He redeemed us. We are declared righteous because of him. That's our justification. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom. Remember, we live in that kingdom, the already, but also the not yet. So we have to live accordingly. In him, we have eternal life. What else could we do except to worship him? Number two, walk with him. Jesus calls on us to abide in him, to dwell with him, to live in a close relationship with him and the Father and the Spirit. His desire for us is to dwell with him and to know him and love him more and more each day. That's what sanctification is all about. It's a relationship. It's not following rules. It's not keeping a checklist. It's abiding, dwelling with him, getting to know him more and more. And then, last but not least, we worship him, we walk with him, and as a result, we work for him. Finally, because he has redeemed us and we live to worship him and we live to get to know him better and live in a relationship to him, that's what is equipped us to live for him, to use our spiritual gifts to expand the kingdom, to bear his name properly by living righteously before an unbelieving world. We do that while we wait for his return and our final glorification. What say you? How now will you now live? That concludes our teaching from Revelation 19. Thank you for being here today. In our next episode, we will turn our attention to Revelation chapter 20, and we will begin our study of the millennium and the great white throne judgment. Until then, this is Jose Figueroa for an approved workman, where we are rightly dividing the world of truth. May God richly bless you. Thank you.